I'm always aware of uh, new people here in our midst and maybe the awkwardness of having silence after the scripture is read. But our effort is really just to give the scripture a certain weight and a certain prominence. I mean, we don't have to give it weight. It is weighty, but we're separating ourselves away from it just to let it stand by itself for a few moments before you before we talk about it. If you have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians 5, that's where we're going to be, and then we'll flip to Esther in just a moment. April 19, or 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was shot, and in May, just a month later, in 1865, the President, now Andrew Johnson, wrote out a proclamation of amnesty following the Civil War. It was an amnesty for those who lived in the South, and this is what part of that said. So that the authority of the government of the United States may be restored, and that peace, order, and freedom may be established, I, Andrew Johnson, President of the United States, do proclaim and declare that I hereby grant to all all persons who have directly or indirectly participated in the existing rebellion, amnesty and pardon with the restoration of all rights under the law of the United States. Now, this is one of several amnesty proclamations that the United States offered in 19 or 1865. And there was a group in the north called the Radical Republicans, and they just felt like there was too much freedom that that Johnson was giving away the North's victory because the the liberalness or the openness of the offer of amnesty to people who had been rebels. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this concept of amnesty in terms of this incredible liberal offering that God Almighty has given to rebels like you and I. Two weeks ago, we tried to establish that Christ is the king. If somebody's going to offer amnesty, somebody has the power, somebody has to have the power to actually write out a proclamation. And that person uniquely for our sinfulness, for our rebellion, that person is Christ. He is the king and he has the ability. He he is sovereign to write out an offer of amnesty. The second thing that we wanted to establish is that amnesty isn't free. This is a big issue, as we said a couple of weeks ago, in our current culture. What do we do with 12 million illegal immigrants? If we offer amnesty to all 12 of them, it isn't just free. Somebody has to offer it, some power, like the United States, and then if it's offered... The sovereign that offers that amnesty has to be able to absorb the cost of offering that freedom. And so Easter on Thursday at the Monday Thursday service and then again on Easter Sunday last week, we talked about God's unique ability in Christ to absorb the offer of amnesty. It's one thing for God just to offer it, but he has to be able to absorb it. And he did that. On the cross, and we saw his victory over that in the empty tomb. So, thirdly, we're going to talk about amnesty and how that information gets disseminated out into the country or the world. 
One of the reasons there were several different proclamations of amnesty given by the president at that particular time is it was very hard to get the information out. Today, it's not very difficult. You have television or radio or the Internet or newsprint. But back in 1865, how do you tell all the people that there's an offer of amnesty? And so there were several different proclamations. And that is a difficulty for the United States at this point. And now we want to look at the design that Jesus has in place to get his offer of amnesty out. And we might think about that as in Matthew 28 called the Great Commission. We are now part of that design to get the information out, to go and proclaim that there's amnesty for all who are willing to take it. We're going to look at that design by looking at 2 Corinthians 5 and Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Corinth is in Greece. Paul is traveling around in this Roman-dominated culture and he's picking up some very rich political language that he's going to use for us to help us understand what our role is. He calls us in verse 20 ambassadors. Now, maybe a few of you grew up in a, a Southern Baptist church as I did. And there was a group when you were about, I don't know, seven or eight or nine that you got into. And you know, you got called, you're part of the Royal Ambassadors. The RAs. And I always thought I was special because I was an RA. I really didn't have any idea what that meant. But here we know. We're going to know what that means to be a royal ambassador. In the Roman Empire, there were two different kinds of, of provinces. One province was called a senatorial province. That's, that's a province or an area that has had submitted to the authority of the Roman government. So there was a peaceful situation. And the other province was called an imperial province. And this was a dangerous area because the people, although the Roman government was strong enough to overpower them, they hadn't given up willingly. They were still rebels and they were looking for any edge that they might be able to get in terms of taking their freedom away from the Roman oppressors. And it's to these imperial provinces that ambassadors get sent. So from from Rome, they send out an ambassador to these places. And then that ambassador is there to proclaim what the sovereign Rome is saying and that people must do. Now, I want us to listen to a couple of the roles that an ambassador plays. And then you draw your own parallels to our situation here. First of all, an ambassador is to remain loyal to their sovereign, yet live in, understand the culture and the climate of the host country and establish relationships with people in that host country. The ambassador goes and he or she is completely under the rule of the sovereign. But he's supposed to live in this foreign country. He's supposed to understand the culture of the foreign country. And he's supposed to build relationships with people in the foreign country. Secondly, he is empowered to make known all of the positions of the sovereign. He's supposed to speak and act as if the sovereign himself would speak and act if he was there. 
So when you come to an embassy and you're in a foreign country and you meet the, the ambassador from the United States, you hope they have the power and the weight of the United States behind them. And then you also hope that they're going to act and speak on behalf of the citizens of the United States and namely the president of the United States. The ambassador is not to negotiate terms. It's not the role of an ambassador to negotiate terms. That's the role of the sovereign. The ambassador is just a conduit for the terms that have been negotiated. The ambassador is not to seek his own welfare. He doesn't need to be worried about his own welfare. He's in a foreign country. The sovereign has sent him to the foreign country and the sovereign will take care of his welfare. And he doesn't need to seek his own honor or glory. All of that goes back to the sovereign. Well, you can see some obvious parallels and we're going to dig into this text and look at it in these two different ways. One, we want to be reminded of the message. We are ambassadors, so we need to look back and say, well, what is the message the sovereign is sending so that when we turn and we live in this foreign country, we're actually giving the right message? And the second thing we want to look at is ourselves as messengers. Let's look at uh, the message. Verse 18. All this is from God. The first thing I want to note is the direction of the message. Everything is coming from God. All of this. What is this? The message of reconciliation and the messenger of reconciliation. Everything is coming from God and moving towards us. Verse 18. Us. Verse 19. He's reconciling the world. God's starting a process And everything is moving from God to us. We in no way are starting with ourselves and trying to move to God. God is the starting point. Now, I think that when we think about this, again, I want us to frame it in this idea that there's been a rebellion, which the Bible calls sin. We are the rebels. And God is moving towards us with a message of freedom. Everything's coming from God. Now, what's unusual about that? Typically, what you would want to see is the person who has offended somebody should be the first person to respond with some sort of offer of peace. Does that make sense? I've offended my wife. I walk away from that offense. And then after a few minutes... I should be the person who walks back in and says, I'm sorry, I've offended you. You would typically think the person who has offended the other party would be the person who would first take the first step. But notice this, God takes the first step. And I don't know if you've been in a situation where uh, the argument doesn't work that way. You've been in an argument where you've been offended, been offended, and you've been dealing with sort of an immature or very self-centered person who walks away from the offense, or maybe they just disregard it. They, they come back into the relationship and they try to pretend like nothing ever happened. You ever been in a situation like that? 
And probably out of frustration, if you've dealt with many people like this, you ask yourself, why do I always have to be the person who goes back in? I didn't even do anything. Have you ever felt that way? I'm the one who's always trying to get back in to the peace treaty. I didn't have anything to do with it. Why doesn't that person make the first step? Well, the Bible states that you and I are prideful and immature. We have offended the Creator. We've pretended like He doesn't exist. Or we, we know that He exists. We just demand that He operates in the way we want Him to operate. And so we manipulate him. And what's really breathless about the gospel is that in the face of all of our immaturity, of our rebellion, of our pride, instead of God waiting for us to make the first move, which we never would have made, he actually comes to us. You see, he has the right and the power to just eliminate those people who are rebels. It's like us dealing with a moth. It, we don't have any power. He could just say, that's it. It's over. And, but you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3? We said this several different times. Adam and Eve, they participate in rebellion. And after the rebellion, the very first thing they want to do is hide. They want to hide from one another and they want to hide from God. And right after that hiding, what happens? Well, they wait a few minutes. They feel really badly about what they've done and they go back and say, God, you know, we've just done something terrible. Is that what happens? No. They would have hidden forever. We would have still be on this side if God hadn't done something. And it says God came walking in the garden asking this question. Do you know where you are? Not because he didn't know where they were. He wanted to know if they knew where they were. And so God is always moving towards us. Even though we're the party that's offended God, He has decided, even in our immaturity, even in our rebellion, to move towards us. And it's actually unbelievable that He would declare amnesty for us. Now, if you're here asking questions about Christianity... I want you to notice the extreme difference between Christianity and religion. What we're not talking about here is religion, where you do certain things and then God's going to do certain things. That's not Christianity. What's unique about Christianity is that Christ has done it all. It's not a deal where you hold up your end and he holds up his end. He's holding up both of the ends. That's the gospel. That's grace. That's mercy. Let me see if I can uh, say this in a maybe another way. Two sides are in a war. The weaker side is being overrun. And typically, when you get to a certain place in the war and the weaker side knows there's no way they're going to win, what does the weaker side do? What is the object that they put out to let the person know we're giving up? You know what this is? They wave the, the white flag, right? We, we've been battling and we say, okay, we, we're not going to win. And so we wave the white flag. We say truce. We're ready for peace. We want to negotiate terms. You and I are 
in a war with God. And the all-powerful, immeasurably stronger force, God, incredibly pulls out His white flag. Do you absorb that? We're the weaker force. We're going to be crushed. We do not wish to give up. And instead of crushing us, what God Almighty does is He pulls out the white flag. Peace. Can we negotiate peace? You have absolutely no hope, but I'm willing to pull out the white flag. And he agrees. He comes to us. He negotiates the treaty. He absorbs all of the penalty for our own rebellion. And I found myself just sort of laughing about this. Like, how could this even be possible? He's coming to us. He's making every concession. He's put His Son on the cross for our behalf. He's waving the white flag, even in the face of our rebellion. C.S. Lewis says this, One of the proofs of Christianity is that nobody would have ever made this up. It's, actual, it's an absolute impossible claim that God would say, I'll condescend to the rebel, I'll wave the white flag, I will absorb all of the cost and the penalty for your rebellion. Let's have peace. I think one of the things that's important as we think of ourselves as messengers is we have to understand the weight of that. Because when somebody gets in touch with that kind of grace, then the gospel becomes irresistible. The second thing I want us to know is the wideness of the proclamation of amnesty. Verse 18, the message is for us. Any rebel in this room right now can have peace with God. Any rebel in this room, no matter what you've done, right now, God in Christ is waving the white flag of peace. And He is willing to absorb all of the costs of your rebellion. Isn't that incredible? But it's not just for us. It's just not for people who happen to be inside these four walls. It's for the whole world. There's only one way to have peace with God. It's not... Peace with God for us who are sitting in this gym right now in the year 2006 in Wilmington, North Carolina. Anyone across all time to have peace with God has to come through the white flag of Jesus Christ. That's the message for the whole world. And that's the challenge. That's the Great Commission is to get that message out into the whole world. You and I are going to have to go live in some foreign countries to remain um, a committed to the sovereign, but build relationships with rebels, live in dangerous places, and wave the white flag and saying, you won't believe what God has done. I was reading just this week an article, and the title of it was, You Will Be Eaten by Cannibals. And it was about a missionary named Patton who went to these South Sea Islands, and the first two people who landed on the island Within, I don't remember if it was an hour or a couple hours, 
were killed and eaten. And so this guy named Patton decided he wanted to go follow up on the work on that. How would you like that assignment? And when he was done, nearly the whole island proclaimed Christ. But you have to go and be willing to live on foreign soil where you might be eaten alive for Christ. It's the message for the whole world. It's not just the message for you and I. The word reconciliation means a complete change of position. First of all, we want to understand the direction of the message. I'm just giving you the information that's coming from God. All of, all of the mercy is coming from God. He's not expecting anything from you in return at this point. He's giving it all. The second thing is that the wideness of the proclamation is for everybody. And third, let's make sure we know what reconciliation itself means. Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world. See that again? The world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting. Uh, The word here is reckoning. Remember this? One day there'll be a day of reckoning. And the idea is that at some point, people are going to know everything that you've done and you're going to have to account for it. And God is saying there's no accounting, there's no estimating, there's no calculating. This is a banking term that Paul is using in 2 Corinthians. And he's saying, I'm not counting any of the sins. I'm not counting any of your rebellion toward your account. I'm not making a list And checking it twice. I'm not finding out who's naughty or nice. That's Santa Claus. That's not Jesus Christ. There's a difference between those two things. And sometimes they get confused. If you, if you're more naughty than nice, you get coal in the bottom of your stocking, right? With Christ, you get it all. You see, he's holding up your end. He's holding up his end. He's holding himself up in front of you. He's waving the white flag and saying, peace, I've absorbed everything. And so the reconciliation is he's not counting what we've done towards a debt that we couldn't possibly pay. Have you ever done this? You ever hit your head? And you said, oh, what did I do to deserve that? You ever done that? Done something and you feel like, well, God, God's up there. He's kind of like a, got a little tally. And as soon as he gets to five and marks through it, he makes sure that something happens to me. You have that idea of God? Such a terrible idea. It's an unbiblical one, but that's the idea. He's not counting those things against him. There's a little passage in the uh, skinny little one chapter book, Philemon. And remember this uh, passage. Paul uh, has Onesimus the slave, right? And he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And Onesimus has become a believer and he's sending him back to the owner, Philemon. And Paul writes in this letter to his friend Philemon, Now receive him no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, 
Do you hear the language of Christ in this? God, I'm sending you back somebody who was a slave, no longer a slave. Consider him a brother. He's very dear to me. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Hear that? The slave, the rebel is coming back. You welcome him as you might welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I'll pay it back. That's the picture. Now, that's one side of reconciliation. Our account gets to zero. He pays the debt. But zero isn't enough for Christ. He doesn't just wipe out the debt and get us to zero. What else does he do? Let's look at verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become. We don't just get zero. Which would be great. We'd all take zero. We'd all be happy for our debt to be paid. But he doesn't just pay our debt. He also gives us the righteousness of Christ. And this word mean righteousness means in the same character. We now put on the same character of Christ. It's a stunning offer. If I came to you and said, I'd be willing to pay all of your debts off, what would you say? Please come to me. Let me give you my address right now. Rush to my house immediately following. Do not eat a donut. Please come to see me. Right? If you can get me to zero, woohoo! But that's not just the gospel. He's saying, yes, I'm getting you to zero, but now I'm going to get you to zero and I'm going to give you more money than you could possibly use. It's endless. And you just be stuck. That's the gospel. That's the proclamation of amnesty. That's the almighty creator waving the white flag and saying, will you have peace on these terms? I'll, I'll not only get you to zero, I'll get you all. And when you come to God, it'll be as if you have my character. We're exchanging characters. I'm taking on your sinful character and I'm giving you my righteousness. And therefore, you can stand before God. I, I think I made this comment before. I was having lunch with a friend who's a Muslim. And I said, okay... We both believe in God. Yes. We both believe that we're going to die and we're going to stand before God. Yes. Now, how is it we're going to be able to stand before God? Well, I hope I'm going to be able to stand before God, according to my friend, on account of the good works that I've done. And I just said, my friend... I hope not to stand before God on account of my good works. I'm standing behind the work of Christ. And so when God looks at me, He sees the character and the nature of Christ. I don't have to worry about my good works. I just have to worry about Christ. And He said, well, now that sounds appealing. Why? Because all of us know even our best works fall way short 
And the Bible says our good works are like bloody rags in Christ or in God's eyes. So we don't want to we don't want to be reconciled on our own good works. All right. We're going to move on to the next next part as the messenger. We we've sort of solidified our idea of the message. It's coming to us. It's it's this grand invitation. It's worldwide. And it has two different sides in this reconciliation. God is getting us to zero and then he's also adding this uh, immensely uh, or this immense to our account. The second thing I want to see is about us is the messenger. And let's pick up on a couple of phrases. Uh, Verse 14 says this, for the love of Christ controls us. Or compels us. And I'm going to talk about that uh, next week when we talk about forgiveness. So you might underline that. We'll come back to that point because that's one of the key elements. We just don't have time to cover that. So let's look at verse 18. He gave us he entrusted us in verse 19. We're the messenger. He's he's given us a message of reconciliation. He's entrusted to us a message of reconciliation. You realize that God had an infinitely number, an infinite number of ways that he could have given the message out. I mean, right. I mean, he could have chosen any. No, I mean, God. And have you ever thought this is this is a real colossal error on God's part to choose me? I mean, if he had an infinite number of ways to get the message out, to have chosen me, to have chosen the church. You don't have to be a great church history scholar to realize that the church has really messed it up. You don't have to be a Paul Phillips scholar to realize that Paul Phillips at times has really messed it up. Surely the infinite, all-wise God could have picked infinitely number of ways that would have been better than me. And maybe he's just kind of left scratching his head saying, oh, if I'd just known, I would have gone for plan B. How bad Paul was. Charles Spurgeon says this. I do not know that an archangel could desire a happier or better work than to stand here, meaning in his pulpit, and speak on behalf of the God of the whole earth. And labor to bring back God's rebellious children to him. But while his splendor might reveal much of the greatness of God to you, yet you might be terrified and alarmed by the angelic preacher. But now the human being who addresses you, being just like yourselves, shows how God lays aside his glory, holds back the thunder of his power, that he may come and reason with you face to face as a man reasons with his friend. You see, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation because we can, in this matter, speak from experience. We are ambassadors. And we're not going to a foreign country that we know nothing about. We know all about the foreign country that we're being sent to because we were natives of the foreign country. We know all the fears. We know all the anxieties. We know all the questions. We're uniquely equipped to be His ambassadors. 
And so you should no longer think it is a bummer for my friend to have me as his only witness. You are uniquely equipped because of your weaknesses to speak face to face with your family or your friend or in your workplace. It's not unfortunate that God has sent you to this place. It's a great benefit that God has sent you to your school or to your workplace or to your family. You have an opportunity because you know what it's like to be on the inside. And you can speak in a different way than even an archangel could speak of. So no more of this. I I guess I'm just not qualified. You're uniquely qualified. And if the message is coming from Christ through you, then you have a great advantage that even an angel would not have. To speak the truth into the lives of the people God has planted you in. Our responsibility as messengers is, you can see this in verse 18 and verse 19. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We have the message of reconciliation. Ministry is the same word that we use for deacon or servant or table waiter. We have the message. This is the Greek word logos. We have the word And so the best service that we can give to somebody else is the word. To speak the word to them, to tell them about the gospel. Now, when I was in Young Life, the high school ministry, uh, the idea was this. We're going to build a relationship with somebody. I'm building a friendship. The idea of an ambassador, I'm planted in a foreign country. Believe me, when I walked out of the high school and I was in the cafeteria, I felt like a foreigner in that country. Everybody looked around and says, who's the new narcotics officer or whatever, right? I'm a foreigner and I'm there to build a relationship with my high school friends. And the best thing I can do is give them the word. And so the idea was as soon as you formed this relational bridge, then walk across the gospel. Now, my question to you is, how many relational bridges that you have that you've never walked across the gospel? My guess is most of us have some skill at building relationships. And we've got this solid, rock-solid bridge, but we're too afraid to use it in the best way to walk across with the Word. You should make a list. You should write down the people. I have a relational bridge with this person. And I've yet to share the gospel. And just begin to pray that God would open up a door that you could just walk across. You could serve him or her best by sharing the gospel. Look, if you're a rebel. Most of the rebels are looking for some kind of peace, some kind of amnesty. And we're just afraid sometimes to give us that. Finally, I want us to note this, that we're working together. Look at chapter six, verse one, working together with him. Now, if verse 18 is correct, all of this is from God. Then how is it that we work together with God? I mean, if everything is coming from God, then how is it that we're working together 
with God. If it's all about God, but yet I'm working together with Him. Two illustrations. One, biblical Esther. If you want to turn to your Bibles in that place. You remember this setting, Mordecai? There's been a proclamation to kill the Jews. Mordecai is coming and asking the queen, whose name is Esther, to go before the king and do whatever she could to delay or to to get this proclamation rejected. And Esther is understandably afraid. And then if you look in verse uh, 14, this is what um, Mordecai has to say back to Queen Esther. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. You you see what Mordecai's concern was? Mordecai's concern was not for God. He understood God's purposes would be accomplished. What is his concern for? Esther. Would Esther move into that place that she could be used by Christ? So nobody's salvation hinges on you doing your job. God's salvation is going to march forward at your doing or without your doing. He's not going to have you say, I just could have gotten a lot more done, but I was so hand-tied because you you weren't willing. He's asking us to move in, and Mordecai is saying, Esther, something's going to get done here by God. Are you going to be in it? And that's a good question that we need to ask ourselves. And I love this. I love this about Esther. So human, so Paul Phillips. Okay, I'm willing to move in. And what does she say? Everybody fast for me. Everybody. I mean, three days, don't eat or drink. Would you feel this way? I'm going to fast. And then in some sort of resign, she says at the end, well, if I perish, I perish. I mean, it doesn't sound like you and me. I'm going in, but uh, if I perish, I perish. It's worse to perish than to be a disobedient. It is far worse. I'm sorry, it's far worse to be disobedient than to perish. Some of you are going, oh, okay, good. (laughs) Does that make sense? If you stand before God Almighty and said, I I went in and I got killed. Okay. I didn't go in. No. It's not okay. The second picture I had of this, this idea of how we're working together was if you're working with a hose. Does a hose work All the hoses I have just lay around. I mean, I don't ever look at my hose and say, poor hose. I mean, it's working hard today. A hose doesn't really work, does it? What does a hose have to do to work? It's really just two things. It has to respond to the pulling of the owner. And you get your hose wrapped around a tree... You're yanking on the thing, you rip your tree out, trying to get the hose to work. 
The hose, all one of the things it has to do is just respond to the pull of the master. And I'm asking you this question again. Where is the master pulling you? And second thing, it has to be a clean conduit. It doesn't have to provide a single thing. It just has to be willing to go where the master goes and be open to the sovereign watering a desert with life-giving water. So when you're going to a person, you're not working for them to get into the kingdom. It's not up to you. You're going because God has pulled you in this direction. You're opening yourself up to God's work. And you're opening yourself up to the person. You probably have been guilty, and you may be guilty of it right now, of trying to force the gospel into somebody. And it doesn't work that way. I mean, you want it. I wish it could work that way. But if it worked that way, then I'd get all the glory because I think I did something wonderful and aren't I terrific. And God's saying, you're just a hose. You just lay around. Look, you lay around. But when I'm ready, you be ready. I'm just wondering if there's any rebels here. You're not going to get a better offer. God waves the white flag. He absorbs everything. So that we might have it all. I know there's some people that you can think of that it's time to respond to the master's pull and be open to sharing the life-giving water of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we are trying to get our selves into your way. We're not inviting you to come be a part of what we're doing. What we're doing doesn't have any value. But what you're doing has eternal value. So we're asking you to help us know how to get into your way, how to respond to your pull, how to be open to sharing the gospel, how to walk across a relational bridge to understand the message of reconciliation. Thank you for the freedom that you have given us. Lord, as we now have a time of offering, we pray that you would multiply these efforts, that you, even in our checkbooks, would be a hose. You have given us money. We would disperse it around the world for the amnesty that you have proclaimed to the whole world through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.